What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 39 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the IRRR. I'll start today by acknowledging the Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands this podcast was recorded. I pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging, as well as to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening to the IRRR podcast today. Today we're speaking to Laurel Downey. Laurel is a family therapist of many years of experience and from a wide variety of contexts, from child and adolescent mental health to child trauma and more. Laurel has previously been a senior research officer at James Cook University, a manager of practice development and training at Berry Street, and she is currently the co-founder and CEO of Catalyst Child and Family Services. Catalyst is a not-for-profit organisation whose aim is to provide services to children, young people, their caregivers and families that will assist in reclaiming lives that have been harmed by abuse, neglect, chaos and other violence. In this episode, Laurel and I speak about a report that she produced a number of years ago entitled Karma Classrooms. The Karma Classrooms report aims to support kindergarten, primary and secondary school teachers and other school staff to understand and work with young people whose lives have been affected by trauma. I feel that this is an incredibly important episode This paper sat on my reading list for a good number of years, and I'm glad that I finally got around to it because it's absolutely packed with incredible advice and insights. Within this podcast, we start with theory, discussing both attachment and trauma theory, and learning first about how to recognize potential signs of trauma in the classroom. In the second half of the interview, we move on to practical classroom strategies, discussing how to disrupt negative downward spirals and exploring how best to deal with a collection of tricky scenarios with potentially traumatized children. I hope that you get as much value out of this discussion with Laurel as I did. I really feel that I am now much better equipped to recognize trauma in the classroom and also to take positive action to support students with trauma. Before we jump in, a reminder about the ollielevel.com mailing list that you can sign up to in order to ensure that you never miss a blog or a podcast. And also a big thank you to all those who have signed up as patrons to support the ongoing costs of this show. I get a real buzz whenever I see that a new patron is joined. And thanks also to those who have used the Patreon messaging functionality to express support for the podcast and even to ask a few questions. If you would like to support the show, follow the link from ollielevel.com or jump onto patreon.com forward slash ERRR to sign up to make a monthly contribution towards the monthly podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by studyclicks.com.au. I came across StudyClicks a few years ago and I've used it non-stop ever since. In a nutshell, StudyClicks is an online repository of past exam questions that, instead of being ordered by year, are ordered by topic. Just yesterday I was helping a student to study Einstein's theory of special relativity and I wanted to access some exam-style questions on the topic. So, instead of filtering through countless PDFs of past papers, I just went straight to studyclicks.com.au clicked on their exam builder, selected physics, special relativity, and was immediately presented with 86 high-quality official VCE past exam questions, complete with solutions targeted directly to the concept that I was looking for. The exam report was also right there, so I was able to show my student directly where the marks were allocated. 
In the past, I've used StudyClicks to make targeted practice sheets for students as well as whole class quizzes. StudyClicks makes this super easy by automatically compiling the questions that I select into a downloadable PDF complete with solutions. And I can even give the quiz a title up the top. StudyClicks is available in 13 subjects associated with the VCE here in Victoria, as well as for the IRIS exam system. But here's the kicker, dear listeners. The amazing thing is that StudyClicks is and always will be free for teachers. They have assigned every school in Victoria with a teacher access code that allows you to upgrade your account for free. And if you don't know the code, you can just go to studyclicks.com.au and they'll be happy to send it to you. Your students can also use StudyClicks for $49 per year for unlimited use in all of their subjects. And there are also affordable pricing options for whole schools and classes too. If you're looking for a fantastic exam preparation solution, I highly recommend that you check out StudyClicks. Just go to studyclicks.com.au in Australia or studyclicks.ie if you're in Ireland or click through directly from this episode's show notes to sign up. Also, before we jump into today, listeners, I also just wanted to flag that the audio quality of this episode isn't quite as good as usual. Unfortunately, I had an input error on my laptop while recording. So for my track, we had to use the backup recording which was actually just my mobile phone. Luckily, we had a backup, and luckily the audio quality doesn't get in the way of the message. But you will likely notice the sound isn't quite as crisp as we usually like to ensure that it is. Keep your ears peeled during this episode for what Patreon supporters will receive in relation to today's show. And with that, dear listeners, let's jump straight into episode 39 of the E-Triple-R podcast with Laurel Downey. Laurel Downey, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Thank you, Ollie. It's a pleasure to be here. Wonderful, Laurel. So first question we ask is if you meet someone new and they say, hey, Laurel, what is it that you do? What's your answer? Well, I would generally say that at the moment I'm running a a not-for-profit organisation in far north Queensland. We mainly work with children in residential care who have had significant traumatic life events and can't live with their families and usually can't live with foster carers either. Okay, and could you give us a bit of history of your career today? Well, I've been around for quite some time. I've mostly worked in both community and government child and adolescent mental health services. I lived in Melbourne until 2008 and I worked for Berry Street there for a long time with the Take Two program. You probably know about Berry Street School. Indeed, I had Tom Brunzel in in the early days of the podcast. Yes. So I had, yeah, I, I didn't work in that school program, but I had quite a lot to do with them. I also worked at the Austin Hospital. I was a family therapist and senior clinician there for quite a long time and then I went back to Berry Street and worked for the Take Two program in its first five years. Uh, I was a senior manager there and then I came up to Queensland. It was a good time in my family's life for a bit of a change and I've been here since 2008 and I've worked for the university in the first couple of years in a project around therapeutic care and out-of-home care and that kind of thing. And then in 2013, with a couple of colleagues, we set up Catalyst. And um, Catalyst has been all-consuming ever since. No doubt, no doubt. A question I've enjoyed asking guests recently, 
kind of provides a bit of a setting for the interview. And that question is, what do you believe should be the purpose of school-based education? Oh, that's a great question. Interestingly, I come from a family of teachers, both my parents, my grandma, one of my aunties, my brother, all of are or were school teachers, mostly primary school teachers. And I myself at 17 did a year of teacher education. So I've been around schools, you know, for a long time. And I think I think there's always a tension for schools between the academic and the social. And I guess my belief is they have to be both. And that these days schools are often a point of stability in the lives of children who may not have any stability anywhere else. And that's a really vital and important aspect of the education system. I think there are lots of complicating factors around that. And I understand teachers who, you know, want to focus on academics rather than the social. But I think if you're thinking about education as preparing children for their lives as adults, then it obviously has to be all-encompassing. Makes a lot of sense. Okay, so what we're discussing today is the report that you authored entitled Karma Classrooms, a guide to working with traumatised children. I came across this report when I was in my teacher education actually a few years ago. I'm ashamed to say I didn't read it then even though it was recommended to me, but actually my partner recently is doing a Master of Social Work and they gave it to her as part of her training. And she, she, she read it, being the diligent student that she is, and she told me that I should read it. And I, and I revisited it and I was incredibly impressed. And I thought, wow, this is some really valuable information that needs to get out there. So I was very excited when you, when you agreed to come onto the podcast. Now, by my reading, your report seeks to achieve two main things. One is really to help readers get an understanding of traumatized children, which I could break into kind of understanding the impacts of trauma as well as developing the ability to recognize trauma. And the second thing is to help teachers and readers to understand how to use a relationship-based approach to support traumatized children. So that's kind of the approach I was keen to take in the interview today. So we'll start out with understanding what trauma does to people. And one of the main things you mention within the report is the idea of attachment theory. Could you give us a bit of an idea about what is attachment theory? So attachment theory is a large body of knowledge. Attachment theory came to us originally from a man called John Bowlby, who worked in the 1940s after the Second World War and became aware of the that children were having who were displaced in Europe and how to, and he and others, began thinking about what do we do about these, these children. They've lost their families and they were obviously traumatised, although trauma theory didn't really exist at that time. And so he was a psychiatrist. I hope I've got that right. But he was involved with sort of child psychiatry and that world. And so his understanding of those children came from his understanding of psychodynamics and parenting and and so on. And his work has been incredibly fundamental, I think, to helping anybody working with children to understand child development 
in a different way because it focuses on the relationship a child has with their parents or their primary attachment figures, which at that point in time, unfortunately, being the gendered world that it was, came back to being about mothers. And of course, these days, people don't see attachment theory like that. They think about people, not about mothers or fathers. He has been accused of promoting the idea that women needed to get out of the workforce after the Second World War and go back into the home to provide good attachment for their children. And he probably has some, you know, some part to play in that. But that wasn't what he was talking about, really. The fundamentals of what he was talking about were was that children will become insecure and anxious if they don't have a strong sort of fundamental attachment figure. And that theory, you know, holds still through right through till today and has become a really foundational theory for child development. Okay. By my reading, there were kind of three main prongs of attachment theory or three main things that it helps people to do. So the first thing was it helps a child to develop self-worth. The second one was it helps them to learn to interact with the social world. And the third was it helps them to self-regulate. So how does a, a strong relationship, maybe I'm right or maybe I'm wrong, please correct me if I'm wrong, how does a strong relationship with a young person's primary caregiver help them to develop these things? Well, the theory goes that when when a baby is born and they're a tiny infant, they can't do anything for themselves. They need an adult to, you know, even in the, right in the beginning, they can't even turn over. They have to have an adult there to pick them up, to change them, to bathe them, to feed them, to keep them warm or cool. And uh, a small baby can't do anything for themselves. And and so what attachment theory says about that is that the adult caregiver provides a rhythm to the day for the infant. There's a, a sleep period, a waking up period, a play period, and there's eating and, and drinking, obviously, or mostly drinking in the beginning through those interactions. And that you can't have a machine do it because it's actually in the the gaze, so the eye contact that the parent has with the baby that begins to develop the neural pathways that lead to those things that you said. So as the child's brain develops, it develops within the relationship with that caregiver. Now, it doesn't have to be just one caregiver. It can be mum, dad auntie and and grandma, or it can be three people parenting that that baby, but it can't be too many people because if you put, you know, if you had a, you know, a a fortnight roster and everyone did a day, that actually isn't good for the baby. It's actually the ongoing repeated contact with one, two, three, you know, maximum small, small number of adult caregivers. And so what happens within that relationship is that the adult ideally remains calm and self-regulated, well-regulated themselves, and that is sort of downloaded into the baby. So the more by picking them up, by feeding them when they're hungry, by 
you know, covering them up when they're cold, uncovering them when they're hot, making sure their nappies are changed and they're clean and, and comfortable. It's not about being clean, it's about being comfortable. That in meeting the needs of the baby, the caregiver provides a regulation, a regulated experience. And also that creating that rhythm for the day that is repeated over and over again creates a, a sense of predictability and, and comfort for the baby. That makes sense? Yeah. I'm, I'm, the thing I'm most interested in out of those kind of three prongs of self-worth, the, in, interacting with the social world and the ability to self-regulate is, is the way in which you kind of talk about the downloading there, the way in which that happens. How does, how does being cared for support someone to become better self-regulated? I'm not sure that scientifically we completely understand that. It's to do with our, our nature as, as mammals, if you like, or as animals. And the way that touch and comfort and food and the eye contact with the adult actually form the neural pathways for the baby. How that actually works, I don't know that I know. I'm not sure that anyone completely knows. I mean, maybe there are neuroscientists out there who understand that better, but that's not, I don't really know, I don't really think we know exactly how it works. Like, because it's not a, it's not an electric charge, like, and it's not a, it's not like an electronic download. It's not, you know, it's not something that happens in the air between me and my child, but it still happens between, you know, and that's, I don't know, physical touch is a big part of it. But, yeah, that's a good question, and I don't know that there's an answer to it. That's fair enough. I guess, relatedly, how, how do we validate a theory like attachment theory? Is attachment theory, like, is it accepted by everyone? Is it something that's contentious? Or what evidence is there to, to say that, yes, attachment theory exists and this is how it works? There is a huge, huge, huge body of research literature that confirms that attachment is a pretty fundamental human behaviour and human experience that and that's been across cultures, across, you know, socioeconomic groups, across, you know, human beings really. There's been contention, there's always contention. In the early days of attachment theory, some of the psychoanalytic theorists disputed it because they believed that the child's experience kind of belonged inside the child and not in a relationship. So, you know, pre-relationship kind of theory. There have been challenges to attachment theory by, by those who think it's somewhat judgmental and that it discriminates against women. So there's been a feminist challenge to it. So there, there have, of course, been challenges to it along the way. I guess my experience, having been sort of around child development and and those sort of sectors for quite a long time is that the challenges come and go but the theory seems to stick and there there isn't really anyone much these days who is mounting a challenge to attachment theory although you know of course having said that someone will call in and say oh yeah but there was this and that you know yeah i think attachment theory's pretty much won the day there was also a postmodern challenge 
kind of saying that attachment theory was a grand narrative and all grand narratives are, you know, irrelevant in the age of postmodernism and relativism would say that relationships are predetermined what's happening in the moment and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Fair enough. Well, we'll leave that one for now. Yeah. Sorry, just one other thing about attachment theory. You mentioned self-worth and I think that's a really fundamental part of attachment theory too, as well as self-regulation in that what happens in the relationship between the, the caregiver and the child is that your child feels valued. So if you don't get that good regulated experience as an infant it's hard later on to feel like you're a good person and some of the attachment assessment you know the work in actual child psychiatry and and child development around assessment indicates that children who haven't had that good early experience are more likely to have a negative view of themselves and a negative view of the world and and others okay yeah, that makes sense. And I can kind of imagine a mechanism there whereby if a baby's crying or something and they're not attended to, they implicitly get the message that, oh, I'm not worth caring after. Yeah, 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 exactly. That makes a lot of sense. We might move now on to the second idea presented in this kind of theoretical front section of the report, and that, that relates to the idea of trauma theory. So, so what is trauma theory and how is it different or the same or similar to attachment theory? Mm. There's, of course, a, a crossover with attachment theory. Trauma theory is, is actually very complex and I find it difficult sometimes to describe it really accurately because I'm not a neuroscientist. It's, it came from... Look, originally it actually came from work with Vietnam veterans and women reporting sexual assault and rape. And there was some work done around that in the 1980s that started describing a fairly common picture of the impact of trauma in adults due to frightening experiences. So the fundamental definition really is that if you have an experience that is so frightening that it overwhelms your your ability to cope, then you may end up being what you might say is traumatised. You may have a significant experience of trauma. And what that means is that you'll you know, quite often have flashbacks to the experience that you'll be in a heightened state that you're anxious and and finding it hard to think your way through things and hard to deal with the normal world, that kind of experience, and that reminders of what happened will trigger that sense of heightened emotional state and, and heightened physical reactive state. So in terms of how trauma affects the brain, you're better off interviewing a neuroscientist than me. And I'm always reluctant to talk about it too much because I I suppose I have a, a sort of questioning view of trauma theory to an extent. I think we have to be really careful with trauma theory that we don't find it so interesting that we forget about other parts of human development and, and so on. 
there is now a also a sort of neurobiology of attachment and so then the those two things sort of fit together quite nicely and that kind of goes along the lines of if you're in a secure if this is for children not so much for adults if you're a child who's had secure attachments and you know good relatively good, nothing's ever perfect, but good enough parenting that you've got a good sense of regulation, self-worth and so on, then if you suffer in a frightening experience, you have somewhere to go with that frightening experience and you are more likely to have a good recovery from that. Whereas the child who's had a neglected or neglectful early life and doesn't have secure attachments, if they then suffer a trauma, their recovery is, is much more difficult. I find that really a helpful way of thinking, particularly about children in the um, child protection system who generally are have experienced both those things. Mm. So what are the kind of long-term effects or, or how, does, how does this trauma manifest and how is it relived and how does it affect people's lived experience? Well, it's very case-specific, the actual impact. It really depends at what point in the person's life did that trauma occur, how long did it go for, how many times it was repeated, and did that person have access to supports at the time. And so, you know, something might happen to you right now and the same thing happened to me right now and we would have very different responses and experiences of that you know it it may be that and also there there's some thinking that for adults that a trauma in adulthood is easier to recover from if there's no trauma in childhood but trauma in childhood is a sometimes a precursor to not recovering from trauma in adulthood that that's quite interesting too so within the paper, let, let's dig a little bit deeper into that. Within the paper, you, you mentioned this idea of affect dysregulation and you talk about how people who've experienced trauma can subsequently experience a thing called hyperarousal or dissociation. Could you tell us a bit about hyperarousal and dissociation? Sure. And this is more in reference to children than adults, but the same applies to adults. So hyperarousal is being in a an extended aroused state. And aroused means in that in that context on high alert. So it's like for a child, what that usually means is that they're hypervigilant. So they're tracking their environment for danger all the time, regardless of whether there's danger there or not. They're perceiving threat even when there is no threat. So, you know, for a child who is in the playground and someone runs past and accidentally knocks them over, that was was intentional. It's like ascribing intention to anything that seems dangerous and then being on high alert for any kind of danger. And, And so... Unfortunately, this often looks like ADHD because they're, you know, a child in that state finds it very hard to concentrate, very hard to stay calm, very hard to stop fidgeting and moving and 
bouncing off the walls. And children who have that kind of condition, if you like, in a more extreme way, can be very aggressive and and disrespectful. And because what they're what they're they're doing essentially is fighting all the time. So they're in that heightened fight. You know the the concept of fight, flight, and freeze. So they're in fight sort of all the time. A lot of the children we have in our residential care program are like that. They they are hyper aroused all the time and very easily triggered into aggression and disruptive behaviour. So it's kind of does that answer that question? Yeah, that's hyper arousal. What about dissociation? Dissociation is a sort of not being present. So uh, it's where the the child's sort of response system is overwhelmed and they just they just cut off. And it's a it's an unconscious response. It's not it's not deliberate in any way. They're not avoiding, they're not they're not trying to be disrespectful, but they're kind of not there. It's um when you go back to the fight light and freeze it's kind of the freeze part of that um, equation it's like you know and there are psychological ways of explaining this as well as neurobiological ways it's like the world's so hard so why should I be there you know that that sort of response to trauma so a dissociative person often can't remember you know you say oh you know where have you been where have you been I, you know, oh, I don't know. And it, it is akin to daydreaming in a sense, you know, that sense of drifting off from reality and not. But when we daydream, it's actually a very natural and not an unhealthy process. It's like our brain's having a little bit of a rest and time out. Dissociation is not like that. It's a much more pervasive and sort of detrimental way to be. And I guess I guess the person who's dissociative could be disassociating from many things. They could be disassociating from the environment around them, or the emotion, their own emotions, or other people's emotions. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Fair enough. Something I was interested in this discussion within the paper was the way that this dissociation comes about. It talked about how it's actually a defence mechanism by which a person in a traumatic relationship wants to shield themselves from an awareness of the intent of their caregiver or the other person to actually harm them. So it's like, I, I don't want to face the fact that this person has an intent to harm me, so I'm going to dissociate myself from the ability to read their intent. Is that is that correct? Yes and no, I'd say. Like, yes, in that that's part of the psychology of dissociation. The neurobiology is a bit different because it's not as sort of intentional as that, if you like, not as deliberate as that. It just happens. You could say that for many children who've been abused. And, you know, interestingly, working in child protection system, children are often incredibly defensive of the parent who hurt them and still love that parent and still want to be with that parent. It's a, actually a very rare child who'll say, yeah, my mum my bashed me and I don't want to live there anymore. It's just not what kids do. It's not how they, they think or what they express. So I was speaking, I was speaking from the uh, perspective of the subconscious there. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, it makes sense, doesn't it, that, that you don't want to think about 
the fact that someone hurt you and they actually meant to hurt you. It's very hard for a child to comprehend that in any way. Mm. So in this realm, we often talk about negative cycles and part of the dissociation, as, as just mentioned, was people's reduced ability to kind of get an accurate read of other people's and other people's intentions. Mm. So is this, what, is this one of the things that contributes to people getting into negative cycles in terms of relationships and things like that? Oh, it's a negative cycle, but it's also um, it's skill development. You know, most children, as they go through, you know, their primary school years, develop that capacity to read other people, to, to understand that other people might be thinking different thoughts to them, that what they think isn't the same as what others are thinking. For children who've experienced abuse and neglect who have that combined attachment trauma kind of presentation, they tend to not understand the thoughts and feelings of other people and not really understand their own thoughts and feelings either and to to sort of in a way not be able to it's like they you know that it's it would be easy to describe a lot of these kids as not having a conscience but it's more like they have a they have a lot of shame fundamental shame about themselves and don't seem to have any shame about doing the wrong thing. Whereas the majority of, of kids, you know, you pick them up, you catch them doing the wrong thing and you tell them off, and, oh, you know, you get the whole kind of head down shame response. Children who have that inability to understand their own thoughts and the feelings of others find that really hard. Mm. We've talked about a lot of ways in which trauma can kind of present and you've got a lifetime of experience working with young people with trauma. I was wondering if you walk into a classroom or into a social setting where there are people with trauma, what are some of the things that help you to go, oh, that that could potentially be someone acting out or someone daydreaming or something like that as a result of trauma? How do you, how do you tell that? How do you sense that? Well, look, it's actually, I think that's really hard just walking in cold. I think you'd need to go back and, you know, visit that classroom a few times to really see, you know, is the is the boy who's being disruptive and agitating and stirring up his mates and calling out rude things and so on, is that a trauma response or is he just having a bad day? Is he... Is this something that uh, you, you have to look at the pattern of behaviour, not just what's happening in the moment? Or is the little kid down the back who staring into space and not, you know, not paying attention, is that because they were up late last night, you know, because something had happened in the family? Or if there's a pattern of that, is that because they're actually somewhat dissociative in the classroom? So you can't. You can't go from your initial observation. You have to have a pattern of behaviour. But, yeah, it's the aggressive ones and the quiet ones that, you know, that you're most going to be worried about. Is there something about the way that that pattern manifests in combination with your knowledge about the history of a child that helps you to, to distinguish that? Or are there certain ways that a child will play up or be quiet in a kind of a patterned way that will help you determine it's more maybe more trauma-induced rather than something else? No, I don't think so. I don't think it's that easy. And there's also personality 
in that mix. You know, some kids are just born mischievous. I've got a grandson like that. He's <laughs> all over the face in every action. <laughs> yeah, and, I mean, I guess that's good for teachers to know it can be really hard to distinguish. Yeah. It, so we need to use yeah. a combination of these really careful observations, a bit of sensitivity. Yeah. But the things that you, I guess, you know, teachers also, I mean, teachers know their classrooms really well. They know which kids are having a bad day and which have this pattern of behaviour. They sometimes know, is this just a cheeky kid or is this child sending them a message of some sort, you know? And it's, I think teachers do build up a lot of skills around that. I have a niece who's a teacher and it's fascinating listening to her talking about her class and what she thinks because she often asks me, what do you think about this kid and what do you think about that one? And there's also, you have to also be really careful about, you know, developmental factors. Does this child have some cognitive delay? Does this child have some autism spectrum problems? Because it, not everything is, is caused by trauma. And you often know, I think, with those kids who are just so incredibly angry and don't seem to respond terribly well and and you start have to start questioning what's going on at home it's the it's the little quiet ones down the back who often get missed though the dissociative children and particularly for girls and sometimes for boys what you then see in adolescence is the emergence of self-harm and so again though self-harm while it is often an indicator of trauma, sometimes it's the friendship group and the peer group and the influence of others. And, you know, you can't be categorical about any of it, really. A great warning, great warning. Another thing I'm interested in is the idea of intergenerational trauma. What does this mean and, and how does it happen? Well, the, the thinking about intergenerational trauma actually started after the Holocaust where families who'd had that the experience of being extremely, you know, traumatised during the Holocaust found that their children also suffered, whether they knew about the trauma or not. And a lot of the, the particularly the Jewish families who went through, the, through those experiences did not talk about them, but they found that their children were still highly anxious, quite reactive, triggered by particular things. And so some research started around what is that? You know, I've, I'm safe now. I've been a good parent. I've provided for my family. My family are not, my children are not at risk. They're not actually in danger, but they're still acting like they're in danger. And this idea that kind of that you can't completely just cover it up you know, that it will come out somehow. You can't be completely kind of normal if that's your experience. And so that thinking then has spread to a whole lot of other scenarios like Indigenous peoples and refugees and asylum seekers and so on. And that, that idea that what happened to your parents is going to actually kind of come out in you unless you do something particularly about that. Here in far north Queensland, we talk about we have a high proportion of 
Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander children in the care system. And we talk about that in terms of the stolen generations and the impact of the, on those people of those traumas and then the impact down the generations. I think it also, it's not just the, the trauma, it's also the attachment patterns. If you weren't securely attached yourself as a child, it's very hard to then do that for your own children and so that then gets passed down the generations as well. It's a particularly big factor for stolen generations' families. Do, do you have programs that help parents to provide that kind of level of attachment to their children to kind of break that cycle? Is that is that something that not-for-profits like your own do? Look, in my service, we would, we would mostly work with other services in the system to do that, not necessarily ourselves. I think the, the child welfare system provides a lot of support to families in all different kinds of ways, depending on their their needs. What I think is is often missing because it's really expensive is really good therapy for somebody who's suffered a lot themselves. And you know, sometimes case management and and family support is doesn't hit the spot for some parents. And you know, you've got to do that in a triage sense. You've got to you've got to help with the immediate difficulties first, and make sure they've got a house and so on. But what's often missing is that that more in depth therapeutic kind of work, unfortunately. And yeah, system can't afford it. I think. Or doesn't prioritise it highly enough. One or the other. One or the other. There's no votes in child protection. Indeed, it's very unfortunate. Another impact of trauma that you, you hinted at and you suggested I ask you kind of a, a neuroscientist about this, but I'm going to ask you anyway, Laurel, and that's about the impact of trauma on cognition. Feel free to answer in what, whatever capacity you feel qualified to, but what, what kind of impacts can trauma have on a child's ability to engage with academic content? Look, there's a number of different ways of, of sort of theorising about that. There is the neurobiological, which I'm avoiding, but what... One of the ways that I understand it is that trauma can have an effect on executive functioning, essentially. So it's hard for children to to plan, to think through things, to to stay, to sort of stay in their frontal cortex when their emotions are aroused. So there's that that theory that being traumatized and being in a constant state of arousal, keeps you back in your kind of non-thinking brain and it's very hard to use your your executive functioning and your cognitive abilities because that's all up here in your frontal cortex. And that what happens then is that children's are, children are in a reactive state, not a thinking state. And, yeah, when we get to interventions, ask me that again, how do you interrupt that for a child? Because there's some interesting things that I know now that I probably didn't know when I was writing Karma Classrooms. Yeah. I think there's other bits to that. It can affect memory, can affect working memory. So it's hard then for a child to hold a problem in mind and work on it. But I think essentially emotions are overriding thinking and that, that's probably the best way of thinking about it metaphorically. Yeah, okay. And I, and I guess something else mentioned in the paper was the impact on 
young people's ability just to organise themselves, like to remember their books or their pen or their pencil and things yeah. like yeah. that. Yeah, exactly. Often our kids do okay in primary school. You know, they've got one room, one teacher. If they go somewhere, it's to the library or the art room or sport or something, but it's fairly contained. They have one person that they listen to most of the time. And they get to high school and, you know, there are, I don't know how many subjects they have now in Year 7, but it's way more than just one room. They've got to have their books together. They've got to, they've got to go in between. They've got to look at their timetable. They've got to remember. And they've got to relate to half of us and teachers. And I think that the level of organisation is really challenged. I've seen so many kids do reasonably okay through primary school and then really fall apart at Year 7. And, and some of these things like forgetting a pen is just, it's, it appears to be carelessness. I mean, it's quite easy yes. for a teacher to go, how can you not remember a pen? You know, what would right. you say to that? Yeah, that's right. But where is my pen? I've no idea where my pen is. I don't know where anything is. I don't know where my jumper is. I don't know anything. I can't even remember where my locker is. So where the hell is my pen? You know, it's just, and it does, I think sometimes, it's easy for teachers to see it as disruptive and naughty and, you know, deliberate in some way. And for those kids, it's so not. It's just they just can't do it. The final thing I wanted to talk about before we get into the practical side of things was the idea of shame. Could you unpack the idea of, of the way that trauma and a lack of attachment can kind of lead to shame? Sure. Look, it really starts with how you conceptualise shame. The, the theoretical frame that I prefer comes from what's called affect theory, which basically says that human beings have a series, a set of primary affects. So these are not emotions, really. They're emotional states that are very specific and displayed on the face. So this comes from Darwin's theory. Of course, I can't remember the name of his book about facial recognition in humans and apes. Is that what it is? I don't remember. Anyway, Darwin was onto it. Like he was amazing. He he knew stuff much more than just collecting animals and the origin of the species. He was a very interesting person. And what he said was there are primary affects and you can see them on the face. So in all human beings and some of the higher primates, these all look the same. So, and that's how we as a social species understand each other because when when you make a face that's anger, I know that you're angry. If you make a face for sadness, I know you're sad. If you make a face for disgust, I know you're disgusted. And so he talked a lot about these primary affects and that theory's been developed by a number of other theorists over the last half a century or so. And what they identify is that one of the primary affects is actually shame and that shame as a primary affect looks the same for everybody. So, you know, the lip goes out, the face goes down, the eyes go down, shoulders slump and everyone knows what shame looks like. The debates then are all about, well, where does guilt fit into shame and what's where does, you know, like the gradations of of emotion. But if you think about shame as a fairly primary response 
all of the affects, and this is where we call it affect, affect regulation, we have to learn to regulate our affect. So we can't, when we're angry, just completely be angry. We have to learn as social beings how to moderate that and fit in with other people in a social world. And that's what affect regulation essentially is. And so we have to then, you know, we learn to moderate and regulate anger and distress and sadness and fear and all those, all the emotions, all the affects. But we also have to learn to moderate shame. And so part of the problem with children who haven't, you know, had that strong attachment and learnt good regulation, they also can't regulate shame. And so, and shame can be an absolutely overwhelming feeling of I'm a worthless piece of shit. And that unfortunately is what shame does to us. And so children who have no regulation around shame, if you say to them, oh, you know, come over here, stop doing that, move away from there, their response is not, oh, oh, I've done the wrong thing. It's, oh, my God, I'm a worthless piece of shit, you know, and they plummet into that depths of shame. That's why shame is such a problem for children who've been abused and neglected. Mm. Wow, it's pretty powerful. Let's try to move into a more positive space now and, and move into the second phase of our interview in terms of what can teachers do about it? So how can teachers or anyone really support young people or, or any people who have experienced trauma? The first thing I wanted to touch on is kind of the fundamentals. So, you know, what does it take to heal? Maybe, you know, maybe heal is a bit, bit of a big word or what does it take to support people who have experienced trauma, what are their kind of fundamental needs in terms of an interaction? For a long time, the key factor has been identified as relationships. So you can talk about support, but support doesn't mean anything unless it's within a relationship. And so certainly my belief is that it's very difficult to hear from heal from trauma unless there are people in your life who are going to support you in the right way over a long period of time. But then what we have to do is construct, well, what actually is happening in that relationship? What are the what are the key kind of tools or skills? And fundamentally, and this is what we teach the caregivers in my service and what I would teach foster carers and parents who have a child who's traumatised, it's about consistency, routine, structure and perseverance, commitment, you know, to go back day after day after day and chip away at the, the problems. It's not, there's no quick fix. And while there are some kind of classic therapeutic kind of modalities that deal with trauma, and as a therapist myself, you know, I'm saying this, Therapy on its own, it's usually not the answer. It's a bit of a, a kind of myth, I think, in the public and even in the child protection system, oh, if only we could get them into therapy, then they'd be okay. Whereas I guess my experience in working in a residential care where we provide a therapeutic framework is that it's actually what the caregivers do day after day, moment after moment, 
constant reminders, constant expression of every day is a new day. What you did, I'm not holding a grudge about what you did yesterday. Today we're going to do being positive, being enthusiastic, moving children along through enthusiasm, not through punishment. There are so many kind of ways of framing this, I suppose, that it, but it comes down to the relationship and it comes down to the commitment and persistence of that person in actually going through a long process. When you say a long process, how long are we talking? <laughs> Impossible to answer. Really depends. Really, really depends. Depends on the child, depends on their system around them. It also depends on are they actually safe and stable now? Or are some things still happening in their lives that are going to undermine anything you can do? So it's just, you just can't say, you know, it takes two years or it takes three months or it takes, and it, it depends on the consistency of, of the care and what, what else is happening. It's an unanswerable question. The, I suppose the only, the only thing I would say, though, in the program that I run, we think about our kids as needing a period of safety. So a period during which we understand that they're going to act out, they're going to have difficulties and they're not going to be, they're not going to behave in a safe way, they're going to need a lot of support, they're going to need the caregivers to take responsibility every moment of the day and keep them safe. And the, what we say in the Therapeutic Resi program is that that can last between three and six months. And after that, then you actually see more of who that kid really is because their initial kind of elevated, reactive, fear-based state has calmed down. And then you can do a whole lot more intensive work. That's when you can do some therapy. That's when you can work more closely around their moral development or their education or their friendships or other kinds of things. In the early days, you're working on their safety, their regulation. Yeah, okay, so almost kind of an amnesty period in which that three to six months, anything they do, it's kind of like, oh, that's fine, free pass, free pass, we'll forgive you, you know, Turn a, turn a new page, it's kind of like Not that. free pass necessarily because you've still got to hold them accountable, but kind of. Every day is a new day. The reason why I asked the how long question is in terms of the way that students move through school. So especially when a student comes into high school, you know, well in primary school you mentioned uh, students usually do better. They see the same teacher every day for a whole year. Right, so that provides a good context for them to form a, a strong relationship with a single responsible adult. But I was thinking maybe moving into high school, part of the reason they struggle is because they do have just kind of these disjointed relationships, seeing adults just a couple of times a week, and then next year it's all new teachers and it's really quite unstable. Is, is this a big issue? Look, it doesn't work like that all the time. For some kids, not having to put up with one teacher every day is actually fantastic. And they're actually better at dealing with each different teacher because they get a break, you know, the expectation that they're just with that teacher and that teacher knows them and they... Because some kids don't like, can't stand that either. So I don't know. It's not, you know, it's horses for courses. Some, you know, I would always say that that primary school relationship is really helpful. But it does depend on the teacher. 
being with one teacher for a year if they're not doing it right is dreadful, you know. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Prompted by my discussion with Peter Gray last episode in which he advocated for kind of 100% student-directed learning, I'm just kind of contrasting that with what you're saying now about the importance of routine and kind of teachers setting that pattern for the day. Does that mean that this student-directed approach is pretty inappropriate for people who have experienced trauma and still suffering from it? Look, I didn't listen to that, so I don't want to say something that's, you know, disrespectful or you know, discounts, that kind of theory. But, and it's probably better if I just say, in my opinion, really traumatised children need a huge amount of stability and they need the, the adult to be in charge. They need the adult. And that doesn't mean that they can't direct some of their own learning, but they actually need the adult to structure them and to create a rhythm for the day that's predictable and they can understand it and it's consistent and and that, that that that's kind of ongoing, that the rules are the same every day, that the expectations are the same every day, that there's kindness and firmness about behaviour. They're things that children need. Within that, how much of their actual learning is self-determined? That's not my area of expertise. I think you could probably, as long as you've got that structure in the classroom or in the program, what the kids are actually doing, I don't know, maybe that's that's more self-determined. The problem for a lot of our children with trauma backgrounds is that, you know, if, if, it's, if it's determined by them, they're going to go and sit on the computer all day they're going to do, you know, they're going to draw all day. They're going to, they're going to do the the thing that is least challenging for them because their ability to concentrate isn't that great. Their memories aren't that great, and they need a lot of structure around their learning. So, yeah. No, that's really valuable. And you know, in education, often the question is not what works best, but kind of what works best for who and at what time and for what purpose and these kind of questions. So, I mean, we're just kind of kind of colouring the different approaches here, I guess, with a bit bit more detail. I want to jump back to that idea of a, what I termed an amnesty period. Is that something that you make explicit to the kids that you're working with or is it just something that's kind of like an unspoken or a spoken rule behind the scenes so you all know, oh, we're just supporting them while they get through this kind of crucial stage until they kind of get out of this hyper-aroused state? It's, that's really tricky because certainly in, in my organisation, it's how my staff speak. This young person's in safety stage. This is what we do in safety stage. This is what we expect of them. We don't have, you know, we don't do this and we don't do that. The children pick up on that at times, but in general they're so... And the, the children who end up in residential care are usually not at school not in that early stage. They're not kids that you would see in a classroom all that much. They're very sort of reactive, distressed, quite aggressive often. And so I'm not suggesting that this is something that useful to to teachers and the education system, but it isn't. And because they're in that state, we don't sit down and say, you're in safety stage and so when you kick a hole in the wall and you punch the caregiver, this is what we're going to do and we're not going to do that. Like, not very useful. 
because they'll just go f off and give you another punch in the face. Yeah, yeah fair enough. Uh, another another question prompted by the reading of Peter Gray's book, he talked a lot about play and he talked about how children use play as a way of processing trauma. So he tells the story in a book of these kids at a preschool who sit, saw a guy fall from a multi-storey building and, and die and they kind of reenacted that scene over a number of weeks and months with different endings as a way to kind of process things. Is this something you've come across? Oh, well, that's... That's traditional play therapy, child play therapy. It's the modality that most child therapists would use at different times. So, yeah, the idea that you can process things through play is very common, very well known. Yeah, it goes back to early days of child psychiatry. Okay, that's good to know. I'm keen to go through a few scenarios now. So the first scenario is kind of, probably a student's made their way out of a program like yours and into a classroom, but a teacher knows that the young person coming in is likely to be still a bit affected by their trauma and they want to kind of set things up in a way that that is going to be most conducive to that student's learning and to the learning of the other students in the class. What are some ways that they can effectively kind of set boundaries and plan for effective education of this student? I think the the most useful things, you know, come back to structure, really. If a teacher has a child in their classroom who, you know, perhaps is in foster care, they may not, teachers don't always know all the background of kids. They're not always told. But knowing, you know, this child comes from a domestic violence scenario, this child comes from, has been removed from home due to, you know, physical abuse or sexual abuse or whatever, then a teacher should know that the more structure they have in their classroom, the better for that child, so that that child is then supported through any transitions, so supported in coming into the room in the morning, supported in the transition between class and playtime or lunchtime, the transition between coming into this classroom, going to the library, and that there is relational support at those times so that the, you know, they'll be the one the teacher should go over and hold their hand while they're walking, you know, across to the library or, you know, that kind of supportive keeping an eye on them and making sure that the structures in the classroom are really clear, that the rules are really clear and that the, there are clear consequences for breaching those rules that are not punitive but supportive and, and coaching and guiding. Some teachers are excellent at being able to do that, at supporting kids who break the rules without that being too shaming or punitive, keeping in mind that if the, if the adult is too punitive, that will shame the traumatised child more than another child. So for me it's about that that classroom rhythm and the consistency and structure of the day and then it's about the teacher kind of developing I suppose their own knowledge of that child when do I move in closer when do I go and stand beside them when does a hand on the shoulder actually help them to settle and concentrate or is if I move in too close, that actually sets them off, so I need to stand over here. It's different. It's not going to be the same formula for every one of those children. When do I say, that's enough now, come over and sit beside me, 
when do I say, you know, you need to apologise to, you know, to John because you just broke all his pencils, you know, like those those kind of interventions, teachers should get to know who is this child and how do they best respond. And for older kids, does this mean doing things like sitting down with them with a, you know, one page or a simple diagrams or something showing kind of the rules and the consequences and things like that and being even more explicit about it than you would with a standard child? Probably. Making sure that they really have understood so they can repeat back to you what it is. Yeah, I would say so. And this kind of is prompted by a question from Boris Henry on Twitter. He talks about whole class strategies for creating a, a calm and safe place for all. But in relation to that, so I could let you talk about that, but also in relation to that, is there a, a way in which you would share with a class, you know, we've got someone joining us who could be reactive, more we need to, I don't know. Is that is that best practice? Is that something you'd avoid doing? What are your thoughts on that? Again, I think it really depends. Sometimes if the child doesn't have any particular problems, identifying like that them like that is actually damaging. You have to be careful that that there's no bullying if the other kids in the class and also that conf- the rules around confidentiality. I mean, no one can say to other children what's happened to this child. You just can't do that. But I think what I've seen work effectively in classrooms is when there's been some kind of incident to actually say to the other children, sometimes to their parents too, because, you know, these things get can get pretty heated, this child is having a really hard time at the moment. They're not actually a naughty person. They're actually struggling with things in their lives that are really hard for other people to understand without actually saying, you know, they were sexually abused three months ago and that's why they're flying off the handle every five minutes. So because you you just can't say that. It's a breach of confidentiality. Teachers would teachers aren't well supposed to say those things, are they? Definitely not. Okay. So we've we've set some boundaries with a young person. However, there will always be times when they kind of end up end in a up in this hyperarousal state and they're struggling. Before you ask me to ask you during this segment to kind of share some of the things you've learned about how to help a young person come down when they're in such a state. So you mentioned before about disrupting patterns. So tell us more about this, Laurel. Yeah, there are some really interesting techniques that are really handy that are, I mean, we in our program use distraction a lot, you know, to actually try and shift a a child's focus away from the thing that they're upset about or the thing that they're trying to do or can't have or, you know, that kind of thing. Distraction's really helpful. But so is the idea that you can interrupt the emotional flow by getting the child to do something very cognitive, like how... Look at the window there. How many planes can you see? How many birds can you see? To count is a very cognitive process and can actually calm the emotional brain. Like, it depends where you're at in that cycle of arousal. Like, if they're right at the top, it'll be, you know, fuck the birds, you know. Like, you're not going to get that good response. You're not going to get a cognitive response. But if you can interrupt, and I think this is an important thing that we teach our caregivers, 
you've got to interrupt it early. So, you know, if you can stop the child from getting to the, the top of that bell curve of arousal and and get them to de-escalate early, earlier, you've got a better chance of avoiding, you know, violence and other really complex behaviours. And to do that, you know, there's all kinds of things you can do. Touch can be really helpful. Holding a child's hand can be very soothing, even though that it seems like a weird thing to do. A touch on the shoulder, a little rub on the back, you know, and staying, but, you know, primarily it's about the adults staying calm too. So adults have to not get triggered by the behaviour or the situation. It's probably the easiest thing to say and the hardest thing to do. Definitely. Uh, it's interesting you talk about some of those strategies because some of them are ones I've, I've come across in various contexts but had never been, you know, introduced to me by an expert like yourself. I've got a colleague who had to support a young person a couple of years ago taught this this young person, we'll call him Joey, he used to just totally fly off the handlebars and go into these incredibly hyper-aroused states. And my mate worked out this way. He just said every time he starts to get like that, he'd ask him to go and open the window or put the blinds up or yeah. just do something. And he'd be like, oh, can, Joey, can you help me just put the blinds up? And he'd just snap out of it and go and do the thing and it would just totally calm him down. So that's in terms of the distraction. In terms of counting, I've actually got a friend who confided in me a few uh, a short time ago that when he gets stressed, he'll just start counting things. Um, yeah. So And no one had told him to do that. He just developed that as a strategy himself exactly. to calm himself down. So it's interesting, the applicability of these strategies. Yeah. Breathing is the other really important one. You know, take three deep breaths quick. See if you can do it quicker than me. You know, making it a little bit fun that sort of thing is can be really helpful for kids because actually because what they do often in that aroused state is stop taking deep breaths and so they're getting less oxygen to the brain and you know all that kind of stuff that's great and i, I did that one as well with a group of about six year eight boys the other day who i was meant to be taking an extra with and it actually had an incredible effect i uh, just calming them all down yeah. so so great to hear the next thing is, how can teachers effectively involve parents or carers in terms of supporting young people with trauma? Mm. This, is, I think, is a really important part of it, particularly parents. So if there are foster carers or residential care workers, if the child's in care, usually there's a sort of expectation, I suppose, that the teacher is part of a, a care team or a stakeholder group to, to discuss that child and how they're going and what can be done and how to deal with particular things. It's, and that becomes part of a sort of systemic support for the teacher, but fundamentally for the child. I think the main issue for some children is that their parent may have also had a really difficult experience of school and so they avoid it. They avoid coming to pick, the, they come. They don't come in the classroom to pick their kid up. They, they, their child doesn't have that chance to say, oh, you know, here's my mum and look what we did today and these are the, you know, look at our beautiful paintings and blah, blah, blah. And so the teacher then misses out on the relationship with that parent because they're, they're scared. And, you know, if you've got a parent who was outside the principal's office every second day, they're not going to come anywhere near a school. And they're, you know, they may also have a child who's 
perhaps experienced domestic violence or some neglect or something like that. And it's very difficult but very important for the school to actually connect with that parent in a kind and caring way. And so if the only contact the parent has with the school is a phone call to say, come and get him, he's on the roof again, you know, they're not going to develop a good relationship. They've actually got to find ways outside of the difficult behaviour to connect with that parent. I guess kind of somewhat related to parents is the way that we praise students. And I was interested in the paper you talked about how we need to be careful in the way we praise students because of basically the way that they can often feel shame about themselves. Could you tell listeners a bit about this? Yes. I guess my experience with children like this is that if they have a very negative self-belief and you say, but you're a great kid, look what you did, that was fantastic, they think you're a liar or they think that you're trying to get something out of them because any time an adult's been nice to them, it's actually led to sexual abuse, for example. And so the, I think the, there's also more information about this in the general kind of parent literature these days that praise is much better directed at effort than at the person. So rather than say you're a good boy, you say, I can see you put a lot of effort into that today. That's amazing. You know, or tell me more about how hard you had to try to finish that drawing today or that piece of maths or whatever it is. So that you're not praising the child or their output, you're just praising how much effort they put into it. And I, I really like that. I think that's really helpful. Some, some of our kids respond quite well to praise. It's not universal, but you have to be a bit careful with it, with those who have a fundamental belief that they're a bad person and so, you know, will reject any praise because they don't think that's them. They don't think they're good. Yeah, that's a really interesting angle on, on some of the stuff I've heard about praise before. You also introduced this idea of time in versus time out. Uh, most pe- teachers will be pretty familiar with the idea of time out, but potentially not time in. So could you tell us about the distinction between these two and why time in is important? Yeah. Look, time out works perfectly well for your ordinary child. You can send them away and they're not devastated by that. They're, they're strong enough in themselves to cope. And so, you know, parents in, in ordinary families shouldn't think that time out is a terrible thing. For the traumatised child, particularly the neglected child with poor attachments, when you do time out, they are alone in a very fundamental way that other children are not. So the, the majority of us who've had reasonable family lives, it's like you've got a rubber band between you and your parent and I mean, my son is, you know, 37 or something and he's a long way away from me, but I can feel that rubber band and he can feel that rubber band and if I give it a tug, he can feel that, you know, metaphorically, I mean. You know, whereas children who haven't got that rubber band, if you send them away, they're bereft, they're alone, they have nothing. And the, the theory goes that if you want to discipline them, you're actually being really punitive in using time out with a child who doesn't have that rubber band. And that, that, that a better response is to say, come and be with me. So it's, it's still a 
a consequence, if you like, a an intervention, a structure, you're still saying, stop what you're doing and come and sit beside me. I want you to to finish this drawing sitting here with me or I want you to count my pencils for me or I want you to sort out the blue chalk from the white chalk. Not that teachers use chalk anymore, that's showing my age. You know, and a simple cognitive task while sitting beside you is a much better consequence than being sent out of the classroom or sent sent away in some way. So does that does that make sense? Yeah, it does does make a lot of sense. And I think the rubber band analogy is helpful. It kind of suggests an inevitability of a re- reunion in some way. Mm-hmm. You know, the further you stretch it, the more likely it is to come back. But but it makes a lot of sense that if this young person doesn't have a sense of that, you know, the momentum of being sent away, they just imagine that it's going to carry them away forever. Yeah, that's yeah, that's really good. I'll, I'll steal that. Probably. No worries. So that's the that's a physics teacher in me in me coming out. <laughs> when I was at uni. I was introduced to this idea of functional behaviour theory and the, basically the, the idea goes that when a young person does something, they do it in order to achieve an outcome. And so based upon this, it has been proposed by some that, you know, if the consequence for a kid acting up is that they get to come closer to you and do something that's nice for them, they're just going to act up so that they get to keep on coming close to you and doing something that's nice for them. What's your response to that? What's wrong with that? <laughs> Great response. <laughs> Look, I'm not a huge fan of functional behaviour theory. I, I kind of agree with it in the sense of all behaviour has meaning, you know, and there is a message in the behaviour. But I'm not convinced that I don't like the kind of learned behaviour analysis stuff and I don't think that that children who need attention are attention seeking, they're actually attention needing. And so if they need to come and sit beside you and they act up to get that attention, then that's perfectly okay because it's what they actually need. Yeah, that's a powerful phrase. Children are attention needing, not attention seeking. Dear listeners, a reminder that those who have signed up as patrons receive a summary of my takeaways from each episode. This month, I condensed the 40-page Karma Classrooms report into a digestible six and a half pages of text for your reading pleasure. I start by concisely summarizing attachment and trauma theory, and then I dot point the critical classroom strategies worth trying with traumatized children, such as time in, not time out, use natural and restorative consequences, and do your best to disrupt downward spirals nice and early. If you've been thinking about signing up as a patron for a while, now would be a great time to do so, and... Given the nature of importance of this episode's content, if you would like the summary but making a small donation to support the show is currently beyond your means, please also just feel free to email me directly and I'll be happy to send the summary your way. However, for those who would like to join the Patreon team of supporters, I'd be forever grateful for a cup of coffee-sized donation each month or delighted with the average monthly donation of $5. I do hope you find the summary helpful this month and with that, let's jump straight back into the HBR podcast with Laurel Downey. When a student has done something wrong, you kind of talked about ways to help them, important things that, that they should do and that they should be guided to do in order to understand their behaviour and, and not do it again. One of them was kind of accepting responsibility and reflecting, and you also talked about kind of natural consequences. So what is the, 
what is the significance of, I mean, probably the significance of kind of accepting our responsibility and reflecting is quite obvious, but what are some ways in which you found it helpful to support young people to re- accept responsibility and reflect? Do you get them to write something? Do you get them to say sorry? Do you get them to practice a saying sorry? How do you approach this? It takes time is the, is the thing. You can't expect at the beginning of your work with a young person that your expectations that they're going to be genuinely apologetic are going to be helpful. So the way we think in our program is we use natural and logical consequences. So a natural consequence is you left your bike outside, it got stolen, you don't have a bike. A logical consequence is you left your bike outside, so I've put it away in the garage and it'll be a little while before you can ride it again. That's you've got to kind of fit punishment with the crime, you know, not that I use crime and punishment as a a framework. And so, and particularly in the early stages of working with a child who's highly traumatised and highly reactive, that it's just repetition. You can't expect a, a good response early on. Later on, when children have started to settle, you can also use restorative consequences. I don't think I wrote about this in Karma Classrooms, no. And they're relational consequences. So things like, I don't know, you made a really big mess and while you have to help me to clean that up, you've also actually used up quite a lot of my time today. And so I've got some chores to do and I'd really like you to help me do them. We're actually going to go and clean the car together because that was what I had, you know, on my list for this afternoon. And so you're actually asking the child to help you with something. It's more relational and it's not about getting the car cleaned. That's not the consequence. It's helping me because you've actually used up my time, that kind of thing. Restorative consequences are also about, you know, genuine apologies and doing something for someone that you've harmed or hurt in some way. You know, the whole restorative justice kind of idea. Yeah, okay. Well, that makes a lot of sense because that's, I guess that's kind of what we want people to learn to do without being asked. That's you know, you do that's You do something wrong and instead of just saying, oh, I'll, I'll pay for it or something, you actually say, oh, I'm going to do something to kind of make up yeah. for this. Yeah, I'm going to help you. I'm going to try to rebuild our relationship. So, yeah, yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. Another part of kind of helping young people reflect on what's happened that you emphasised was helping them encounter a comprehensive narrative about what happened. I was quite interested by this idea. What, what's, the, what's this idea of helping them encounter a comprehensive narrative about the events that took place? The idea is that you can help a child to reconstruct what they might have done at any particular time by going back over what they did do and helping them understand how they were feeling at that time and what else they might have done instead of kicking you or putting a hole in the wall or, you know, throwing everything on the floor or whatever it was that actually happened. Now, again, I think when children are in that regularly hyper-aroused state, it's actually really hard to get them to do that piece of work. And over time, you have to sort of chip away at that small bit by small bit, you know. And and it, it's about then having that in mind when something else happens and saying, oh, remember 
when we talked about that, how about you tell me in words what it is you want right now? Or tell me what actually happened. Why are you so upset? But if you just go in cold with a really aggressive or hyper-aroused child and go, oh, tell me what you're so upset about, you know, that you, you won't get a particularly good response. So it's about it's about choosing your moment and, and, and so on. The idea really is that in helping a child construct any kind of narrative, you're actually always then still, you know, you're coming back into the, the frontal cortex because that's where narrative kind of resides. I wanted to move now into a bit of a discussion of, of what I'm going to call the, the whatabouts. So we've talked about, you know, what, what can happen in lots of ideal scenarios so far or, or when things kind of don't, don't get too hectic. But now, yeah, there's a few whatabouts. And so the first one is kind of what about what the community wants? So you suggest natural consequences, saying sorry, repairing damaged material, things like that. But often a school community will want some kind of retribution for something a young person's done. You know, they might have hurt someone else. So the parents of that other child may want that child to be expelled or something like that to ensure that their, their own child is going to be safe. How can a school system navigate this? With great difficulty. It's really, I think it's extremely hard, you know, weighing up the needs and rights of one child against, you know, a school community is a really hard thing, I think, for the education world to navigate. And it's tricky because, you know, sometimes a, a big consequence can be quite helpful, like police charges, for example. Sometimes it's really necessary because it's the right thing to do for the victim of an assault. Sometimes children are so disruptive and so dangerous that, yes, they should be excluded. It's really, I, I don't really know the answer to that, except that what, what is then lacking in the system is, well, those children still have a right to an education and the more times you push them out, the more disengaged from education they get and they end up at... 13, 14, spending all their time on the streets and not going to school. And that's that's really bad because one of the things I suppose I've, I've got to kind of understand in over the last, I don't know, 10 years maybe, is that when kids are out and about, the only other kids who are out and about are also the ones whose parents aren't really keeping an eye on them. And that that's really that's really negative because the kids who because of the kind of hypervigilance of your, your modern parent, all the other kids are being driven around or are at home and not allowed to walk around the streets. Or if they are, it's just around the corner to their friend or their auntie, and then you've got to ring and tell me where you are. Like when I was a kid, that didn't happen. We just went out, right? My parents wouldn't have known where I was. We didn't have phones. We didn't, there was, you know, you didn't even go home for lunch sometimes, right? And I wasn't with kids who were doing anything wrong. So our world is constructed, unfortunately, so that kids who aren't at school are out and about with other kids who aren't at school, and that becomes incredibly problematic. So 
what we don't always have are good alternative education programs for for children who don't fit into normal school or programs where those kids with very dysregulated behaviour can actually be accommodated. That I I don't know what else to say about that because I you know I totally understand why a school community would want that level of action about a dangerous child. No one wants to send their kid to school to get hurt. Just nobody does. Another what about is tone. So you mentioned how it's really important for a teacher or someone working with a young person to kind of maintain a calm disposition and a measured tone and things like that. But some people might be worried that if they're kind of just calmly saying, you know, what you did was inappropriate, Etc. Etc. The kid might not get might not get the point, especially if they're one of these young people who struggles to read social cues, right? And they just they need kind of like a, a flag waving saying what you did was wrong. So is is that true? Is, are there times when raising a voice is I necessary? I don't agree with that anymore. That can't, that you know that monotone idea. It's an idea that came from trauma theory. I think I actually don't think that's actually useful. I think you know that. That monotone voice can both be very annoying to the elevated child, but also not interrupt their their progression. And I think a better way of thinking about it is a couple of different strategies. There's a guy called Daniel Hughes who uh, is one of my gurus. He talks about the 60-second scold, you know, where you raise your voice deliberately and to get the attention of the child and then you come then you bring it down again that up and and down so it's not like you're yelling at them but the raising of the voice for a short period of time to tell someone you know stop that get away from there do not hurt him put your fist down you know raising your voice a little bit in those situations is i think very reasonable and a good strategy so, yeah, I don't actually agree with the monotone anymore. Okay, that's that's great. And, and we're all learning and as, as we go along in life, so that's great. And in terms of the 60 seconds goal, is the idea that within 60 seconds you've kind of brought it back and down. Yeah, you've yeah. said yeah. what you've got to say and you bring your voice down again. Yep. Okay. In terms of the, the accepting responsibility and reflecting before, what if or what about if a student just won't accept responsibility for their actions and they just kind of, they're just really belligerent? Well, I think you've just got to accept that that's where they're at in that moment. There's, there isn't always something you can do about that. And then it's that persistent chipping away, coming back to it next time something happens, seeing if they're ready to take responsibility. It's a really common thing for these dysregulated children not to take responsibility because their their shame is all about themselves and as a as a response to that they have no shame about what they did to anybody else so they, they have no shame about their actions whereas in a you know for a, a child who's been parented reasonably well and is reasonably well regulated you know by late childhood adolescence They've developed a sort of moral code where doing the right thing is the reward in itself kind of thing. If I do something wrong, I feel bad about it. I need to do something about that. That's what guilt kind of is. Okay. 
In terms of the kind of relational basis of supporting young people, I think something that many teachers will have experienced is when trying to create or foster a relationship with one of these young people, they, they can actually do things that seem to deliberately try to push you away. Have you seen this? How does it often look and how does it often play out? And what should a, a teacher do in such a scenario? Mm, it's very common. You know, it's that whole, do not get close to me. I do not trust adults. You know, keep your distance, stay away from me. The only thing the adult can do is not take it personally. So to have some objectivity about it and to think to themselves while they're saying to me, stay away from me, you know, you're fat old, this, or stay away from me, you you know, the, whatever swear word comes to mind, and that's directed at you and it's it's targeting you. It's not about you. They don't actually, they're not trying to get at you personally. Of course they're trying to get at you. That's their, That's what they're sort of doing. But it's not about you. It's about everybody else who's hurt them and, and let them down and rejected them and neglected them. And, you know, and I think that is a, in the work that I do, our workforce do not last in the job if they can't maintain that objectivity and not take it personally because they get too offended and then they'll get angry and then they'll be punitive or, or dismissive or push the kid away further and that doesn't help anybody. Mm. Another thing you've talked about is that you've, you've talked about like a comforting touch on the shoulder or rub on the back and, and things like that. I mean, in my teacher education, we were very warned against touching kids in any way. There's all these legal things and obviously there are laws that have been put in place to kind of protect kids. But is it the case that maybe some of these laws are actually getting in the way of, of children receiving the comfort that they need? The mo it's called the moral panic about touch, that we shall not touch children. Look, schools, I think, I don't know how to answer that in terms of schools because I think teachers are really vulnerable in those situations and teachers have to be self-protective and not, you know, not cross those barriers even though that's actually what the child needs. And that's the tragedy, unfortunately. There isn't really any easy way about that. In my organisation, unlike the majority of residential care services, we have a safe touch policy, not a no touch policy, because I, we actually fundamentally believe that these children need to be touched. They need physical affection and nurture. But yeah, it gets us into trouble all the time. All the time. What's a safe touch policy look it's like? It's things like don't touch children at all in their bedroom. So if you're going to put your hand on their shoulder, I mean, it depends on the age of the child and we have some quite little kids in our some of our houses and, of course, you can pat them. Don't touch them underneath the blankets. Touch them top of the blankets. If you're, if you're giving a hug, do a, a sideways hug around the shoulder, never front to front or coming up behind them and hugging them. High fives, you know, knuckle rubs, you know, a bit of a rub on the head or holding their hand, things like that. And particularly for our male staff, we say take extra precautions. If you're doing a hug, make sure you're within sight of someone else. And if a child says, 
you know, you're a pedophile, you just touched me, then you write a case note about that, or I'm going to complain, you know, so that there's a lot of self-protective sort of mechanisms around that. It also, yeah, it's more complex than that because it goes into the whole restraint or no restraint kind of issue, but that's residential care, not schools. Hopefully, hopefully not schools. Before you did mention expulsion it's, and that sometimes school communities need to kind of protect the, the other kids at a school, are there any processes that you've come across or, or any ways to tell that like, oh, now it seems like expulsion is the right move now? Do you have any guidance to school leaders in relation to this? I think it's very hard to do it in a way that's helpful to the child because they're always going to feel rejected and, and punished. We had a boy who put his hands around the throat of a teacher. He did get expelled. What was good about it was they met with him immediately. They said to him the police have been notified because this was a serious assault. They said you probably, you know, you're not going to be welcome back here. It was all done you know, I think the next day, not at the time, but the next day they called him in. So they didn't do that, oh, you've got 20 days expulsion and then we'll have a meeting and see if you're going to come back or not. And that, when that's happened and there has been an expulsion, I've found that to be really unhelpful because the kid's expecting to come back to school. And then, and there's also, they're waiting, you know, and that that's not really helpful either. Apart from that, I don't have a great deal to offer on that. I think it's really hard. Oh, I think that in itself is helpful. You know, don't leave the kids in limbo for yeah. too long. In terms of helping people to recover from trauma, you talked about the role of a, a long-term relationship and things like that. But is it ever, I mean, this is kind of a depressing question, but is it ever too late for someone to recover? Are there people who are always, they're never going to get over it, they're just going to be hyper-aroused? And triggered really easily for their whole lives? I think the best way of thinking about that, because that is an impossible question, and the best way of thinking about it is it's like when children are in that, you know, you first come across them and they're they're not in a good place, they're they're hyper aroused, they're they're aggressive, they're, you know, they're acting out or self-harming or whatever it is. It's like their trajectory is going straight up to spending their life in and out of mental health services, possibly criminal justice services. Their children might get taken away by child protection. Their relationships are going to be marred by violence and, and you know, difficulties, conflicts. They can't resolve conflicts, et cetera, et cetera. And that part of our task is to bring that trajectory down so that for many of the, the children that I work with, it's very hard to ever get them back to a, a completely normal developmental pathway. So they might be sitting, you know, at how many, you're the, you're the teacher, what degree is that? Really? 25 degrees. They might be sitting at 25 degrees. And what that means is that their relationship history might not be smooth. They may have a lot of conflict in their lives. They may have periods in their life of depression, anxiety, other mental health difficulties. They may have a period of time of alcohol or drug addiction. You know, they may even have an experience of going to jail, but that it's not as bad as that, what's that, 95 degree? No. Let's go with 80. 
it's not it's, it's, not, it's a, not a crash it's course a, it's not a crash course yeah does that help yeah yeah we just yeah that 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 makes sense i mean it's never going to be the same as a person who's had a completely loving and caring upbringing but we can definitely try to change the trajectory wherever someone's That's at right. in, i mean in relation to that you know children aren't the only people who exhibit the effects of trauma and sometimes it may be, you know, I'm asking this, this question mainly for school leaders, but there, there may be that there are teachers at schools even who are, you know, really easily triggered by students and kind of fly off the handle and things like that. And then you end up with these really volatile combinations of teachers triggering students, students triggering teachers, and, you know, people almost coming to blows at times. Do you have any advice to school leaders who may be managing teachers who are the victims of trauma themselves? I think school leaders need, again, it's a bit like the classroom, room teacher you've got to know your staff and know what their strengths and weaknesses are and pick up early if they're having some kind of difficulty like that for me managing a quite large workforce we we keep an eye on people who we either know have a trauma background i mean some of my staff have a current trauma but you know it's not a background might be in a dv relationship or you know, be facing some other kind of really big difficulty. The DV stuff is probably the most significant for my staff. Domestic violence, and, yeah? Yeah, sorry, domestic violence, family violence. And what what I would say is those, those people are often really triggered by the young people. They, and, and their response to be able to intervene or to become really angry and punitive. So you get, again, those two responses. I just think it's about supporting staff and helping them understand why this is happening. We have an employee assistance program so people can go and we would often recommend that they do go. I think one of the, the big differences between my sector and education is that we do regular supervision with which means sitting down once a month, talking about how you're going and debriefing and, you know, going through your role and are you coping with this and coping with that and how are you going with that? And I noticed, you know, two weeks ago you had this incident. Are you okay now? I don't think that happens in education and that's something I've said for a long time. Teachers probably need supervision too. Mm. It's a great idea. I think probably some school leaders would do it and some department heads would do it, mm-hmm. check in, especially with new staff, but probably making it more yeah, systematic would be yeah, a good idea. Yeah. All right, we might move into some closing questions now, Laurel, if that works okay. for you. What advice would you give to your, you know, it could be your first year self or your early career self? Goodness, it's a long time ago, Ollie. I don't remember. Well, I actually have this thing that I've been saying to myself for a really long time, since I was very young, which is that whenever I started something new, like a new job or a new, I changed careers a couple of times, a new part of my career, I would say to myself, this is going to feel really horrible for three months. You're not going to know what you're doing, but after three months, you will know what you're doing, so calm down. (laughs) There you go, your amnesty period for yourself. That's yeah. exactly right, my safety stage. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Three months is what I reckon it takes to settle into a role and feel like you know what you're doing. 
safety stage for yourself. Sounds good. Next question, what's your information diet like? And in relation to that, are there any resources and things like that you'd, you'd direct listeners to? Oh, look, I'm, I'm CEO of an organisation with 120 staff. I, I don't have time. I don't have the time I would like to have to read. And so I have to target my my reading to whatever it is that's kind of in front of me at the time. So, in fact, I've been doing a lot of work around touch just recently because it's been an issue for my organisation. Most of what I look at is therapeutic care, literature or other things around child protection and trauma. I don't read as much as I would like to. I tend to read when I'm on holidays rather than during the work, my work. There are some in my field, there's a there's a few really relevant websites that I keep in touch with and read their updates and newsletters and journals and things. Some of the child trauma websites, there's a nice American one, of course I don't remember its name, National Something Something. There's an English therapeutic care website that publishes a monthly journal. There's some other US the residential care work that I quite like. Interestingly, somehow in my email trail, I started getting a a really nice blog that's actually for teachers. I can send you the link, actually. I can't remember. You probably already know about it because, it, I don't know, I don't even remember how I came across it. But what I like about it is it's, a, it's a, just a topic every time it comes. It's like a blog. And it'll be what to do with that student who keeps, you know, rolling his eyes whenever you say X. Like it's really specific. And it's it, it's actually really nice. I don't read them all because I'm, you know, I'm not a teacher, so I'm not, I don't really want to know all those things. But it's a nice way of actually working to be that specific. And, yeah, yeah. I'll send you the, the link to that. That sounds great. We'll put it in the in the show notes yeah. for listeners. Yeah. What are you currently excited about, Lauren? <laughs> that maybe we'll get some action on climate change. Can I say that? <laughs> Good answer. Great answer. All right. And any any last calls to action? Things that you'd like listeners to go away today? And do? No. Look, I think you know, continual continually updating yourself about about the about children about child development for teachers i think that's really fundamental yeah i think teachers are warm and firm and kind like what more can you say i mean anyone who interacts with children need to be like that well laura Denley, thank you so much for your time today we've covered a lot of ground for me the paper did so much in helping me to you know see some students in my own classes in a different way and, and I think probably now and into the future, I'll be able to approach children with a bit more compassion and a bit more understanding. And, you know, that, that kid who forgot their pen maybe isn't just forgetful or careless. Maybe there's actually something going on. Hopefully that's something that was communicated to listeners. And hopefully also we've communicated a lot about what can be done to support people like this in terms of long-term relationships, maintaining an even keel, but also things like, you know, what you mentioned, you change, the, change your mind about in terms of using, raising your voice at a strategic time and in a strategic way, disrupting young people's behaviour by getting them to open the blinds or count things and things like that. And, yeah, it's just been incredibly illuminating for me, this discussion, and I hope that it, it 
enables lots of young people around Australia and around the world to get the kind of care they need to overcome trauma. So, Lowell Downey, thanks for your time today. And we look forward to hearing what that uh, blog is that you've been finding very helpful as well. Thank you, Ali. It was really a pleasure. It's really nice to, you know, have a chance to sort of bang on, if you like, about things that I'm interested in. So thanks for the invitation. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the ERRR podcast with Laurel Downey. As always, you can find show notes with links to all the resources that were mentioned at ollielovell.com. And if you'd like to help the ERRR podcast to keep on keeping on, as well as receive my summary thoughts on Laurel's report, then please go to patreon.com forward slash ERRR to make a small monthly contribution to support the show. Please share this episode with friends and colleagues if you got something out of it. And if you've got any suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear on the podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Or if you've got any questions, comments, thoughts, or reflections on this episode or any other ERRR episode, I always welcome contact from listeners via Twitter or email. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au.